Well, we're continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, as we will for many weeks, and continuing to explore the question, what does it mean to live the good life? And seeing what Christianity has to say about that question. Uh, as we've said before in the last couple of weeks, the Sermon on the Mount, this beautiful text that Jesus preached, is Christianity's answer to how do we flourish as human beings. The sermon by Jesus is really a vision of what it looks like uh, when, when Christ begins to transform us from the inside out by dwelling in us and with us. Now, it isn't an idealistic utopia of something in the future. It's a vision of right now, of what life will be like as a citizen of God's kingdom in a fallen world. When Jesus writes his law on the tablets of our hearts, when he transforms us, yet we still live around a broken world. And as we'll see in the sermon, we've already seen, uh, there's a continual contrast that Jesus' words draw between what does flourishing and human achievement look like in the kingdoms of man and what does it look like in the kingdom of God. In particular, in these Beatitudes, it's very stark. Um, the two notions are opposite, even black and white. There's really no overlap in the Beatitudes. Jesus uses words like poor and mourning, hungry and thirsty, persecuted even, to describe flourishing in his kingdom. He even calls these people blessed. And when we use that word, as we have done, we need to be very careful to hear it as Jesus intended it. So again, from the lips of Jesus, this word blessed means you're in the kingdom. It means you're close to the heart of God, and therefore you have a substantial, enduring happiness. Blessed means you're flourishing because the Father's delight is upon you. And in this world where much is out of step with God's kingdom, the blessed folks, well, they don't really fit in. Scripture calls us strangers and aliens in this world for that exact reason. We look different. We feel out of place. We're living at odds with the way things are around us because, because we're different from the kingdoms of man. And because of that, we will suffer. Jonathan Pennington says it like this. He describes this experience this way. So the Beatitudes are invitations to, way, to a way of being in the world that will result in human flourishing. While we understand that Jesus is redefining flourishing as suffering while we await the kingdom. But what Jesus shows us is that this life, this suffering while awaiting the kingdom, it actually brings about real life, abundant life, the eternal life Jesus offers right here and right now. It's both. Do you remember the image we started working with last week, that of wells? And we said that the Beatitudes are each a well, which initially looks like a dark hole on the ground, not much there. Um, but a well is something that if you go down into or reach down into, there is water. There is water inside that brings life. And the Beatitudes are like each individual one's a well. But at the bottom of these, there's the eternal life that Jesus offers, the life that dwells and arises up in us to share life with others. Today, we descend into the well of Matthew 5, verse 4. It's a dark well. And particularly in our culture, one that is scorned. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, it, it's hard to overstate 
particularly how contradictory this beatitude sounds to our ears, I think. What are you talking about? Those who, are, those who are mourning are blessed. Those who are sad, those who are grieving are blessed. This makes no sense. If we look around us, we'd say, especially in a world of hashtag blessed on the internet, happiness and, and blessedness is for those who are happy, who have money, who have relationships and comfort and security that bring this immediate sense of, of happiness. Well, not according to Jesus. He said, blessed are those who mourn. Now, I want to recognize some of you may be feeling apprehension or even fear as we talk about this and descend into this well this morning. Um, some of you know the experience of mourning very, very well. It's your life. Um, some of you may have spent your whole life, maybe you continue to do so, avoiding this feeling and talking about it. So that's the reality we face. Yet, that is where Jesus has invited us today in his words. So let's hold on to this rope together as we go down, as we descend down and see if we can taste some of the living water that Jesus has for us there. Matthew 5, 4 says very simply, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now remember, these beatitudes are a declaration and a promise statement. The declaration, the mourners are blessed. They're flourishing. And the promise is that they will be comforted. Remember, the promise that they will be comforted explains the apparent oxymoron uh, of the declaration. How are those who mourn blessed? That doesn't seem to make sense. They're blessed because they will be comforted. We'll unpack this beatitude in three steps today. Who are the blessed mourners? Why are they blessed? And how do we become blessed mourners? But first, who are these people, this, this strange paradox, the blessed mourners? The word Jesus uses here in verse 4, is we're translating mourn, isn't a soft word. Um, you may remember, if you hear last week, that Jesus' word for uh, saying the poor in spirit is also a very, it's a very strong word. It means, it means absolute poverty. It means abject poverty, having absolutely nothing. Well, Jesus does the same thing here. Mourning, this isn't simply feeling low or a bit sad. Uh, mourners had a very specific task in this day, specifically grieving the dead, um, lamenting for things that are not as they ought to be. Now, in the Bible, mourning is even more than this feeling of internal sadness, even if it's deep. It goes beyond the emotion. A mourning is an active state of grief that people would enter into and take on and lament what was lost. Scripture shows us that the ancients were much more uh, willing to engage and display grief and sorrow than we are today in our age. They took it very seriously. Um, traditionally, when someone would die in a community, uh, the community would enter into a period of at least seven days just set aside for mourning, for mourning the dead. And it was an external thing. Mourners would wear clothing, particularly called sackcloth, which was a coarse fabric made of goat's hair, and sometimes even sit in ashes or dust, sometimes even sing songs of lament called a dirge. And we see King David doing that in 2 Samuel when King Saul and King Saul's son Jonathan die. He sings a song of lament. So mourning in the ancient world uh, it was a state of lament, a whole experience 
of sorrow that people would enter into when things were seriously wrong. Then and today, people mourn when what is alive and loved is lost. Because when things are not as they are ought to be, the only fitting response is mourning. So, is Jesus saying, happy and flourishing and blessed are you when you experience deep loss and tragedy? When you put on sackcloth and ashes, congratulations to you? Is this what he's saying? No, it's not what he's saying. Recall how we discussed what poor in spirit meant last week again. It's not congratulating those who are materially destitute and have nothing. As we continue through the Beatitudes, we need to interpret them consistently. And we must continue to read the entirety of this great sermon in the context of Jesus' first sermon in Matthew 4.17. It's very short. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the blessed mourners are those who know the kingdom is at hand, who have heard this, this call from Jesus. They know it and they grieve where it is ignored. The blessed mourners are those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus the King as their Lord and Savior. And they have a softness of heart to lament the ongoing sin and brokenness in themselves and in, in the world around them. The blessed mourners mourn like Jesus, who said he had the spirit of the living God dwelling in him. And the blessed mourners have the spirit of, living, of the living God dwelling in them. And the Spirit is continually softening their hearts and shaping them and forming them to be like the very heart of God. The blessed mourners have soft hearts because they are poor in spirit, because they know they're bankrupt before God, because they know they have nothing to offer as a bargaining chip to God, and they allow the Holy Spirit to come in and be their all in all. So they can do nothing besides mourn when darkness reigns and when the good news of the gospel is forgotten and trodden underfoot, they mourn. Well, why are the mourners blessed? Let's move on. Because they will be comforted. It's the simple message of Jesus. They're, they're blessed because they will be comforted. Now, that can still seem vague, I know. What is this comfort? So let's ask a further question. How are the mourners comforted? How does this come? The mourners are comforted because they've been given two things, soft hearts, which we've already touched on, and a radical hope. They're given soft hearts and a radical hope. First, the mourners are blessed because they have soft hearts. They've been given a gift to see through the lies of the world, through the propaganda, a world which calls what is good evil and which calls what is evil good. And to feel the weight of this, the, the, those who are mourning, they aren't fooled by it. They can feel the weight of evil. They aren't fooled by the images and personas and stories that people put up and the world puts up to cover and to mask the real pain and suffering in the world. They can see through it. They know in their own hearts, too, that they aren't as naturally good as the world would have them think, as the self-help books would have them think. The mourners have a softness of heart. They're able to grieve, meaning they are able to feel the weight and enter into the weight of brokenness, of a hungry child or a broken marriage or the spiritual darkness that surrounds us. 
But let's be careful because softness of heart on its own would actually not be a blessing, but a curse. Because if you feel all that is wrong in the world and in your own soul with no hope, and that's it, that's going to take you into unrelenting despair, into a very dark place. And it's a tragedy that many people come to this place that give up numbing and avoiding all this stuff, and they, and they live in a, in a place of darkness. Some people do this, and they simply can't go on, and they commit suicide. And I want to pause and say to that, if that's you, if you feel like you're in this state of unrelenting despair in this pit, please know that this is a safe place to share that. Please don't walk alone in that. And I'm asking you today to please reach out to someone here. We are here to talk to you about that and journey with you in that. There's people in this community who have walked that path and continue to do so. This isn't a perfect church, definitely not, but we're committed to making space for you and people in that place and to bringing those burdens to the only place of healing that we know is true, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. So please, reach out if that's you. The blessed mourners are blessed because they have soft hearts, but that's not it. They also have a radical hope, and that's how they're comforted. They have, they have hearts softened, not unto despair, but unto hope, by abiding in Jesus, who is the great comforter, and we see this in Jesus. We see that he has a soft heart and a radical hope, first in how he fulfills this Isaiah passage that we read earlier and will continue to read because the Beatitudes are full of it. Jesus says he was the one who showed up and says, the spirit of, of God is upon me. I'm the one who's come to preach good news to the poor, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus proclaims he is the one on whom God's spirit rests to bring this comfort and deliverance. And we see Jesus' soft heart and his radical hope all throughout the Gospels. We see him weeping when his friend Lazarus dies and making space to be with Mary and Martha, his sisters and their family, and feeling the weight of that, and then offering a radical hope and resurrection by raising him to life again, by saying death isn't the end and I can prove it. We see him weeping over Jerusalem, the city of his people, when he sees how much was wrong there, how much was being missed, and even in himself when he was being rejected as God coming to his people, he stops and he weeps. And he makes space to feel that. And then he offers the most radical hope he can by going down the hill, down the mountain, right into the heart of the city and dying for it on his own voluntarily and giving up his life again to say, this isn't the end. And I can provide a radical hope through my own life being laid down and resurrected up again. Jesus dies for, for sin and resurrects for life for Jerusalem and to all of us. The blessed mourners like Jesus, they have soft hearts, but they're not lost in despair because they also have this radical hope in knowing who God is, knowing he's a God of resurrection who's committed to putting things to right again. Do you know people like this who aren't afraid to ask tough questions, who ask you and others how you really are and who can handle it when you, when you need to mourn, when you have a response that isn't, I'm doing okay? 
These people, interestingly, are usually the ones who can also admit their own mistakes, who can admit their sin freely because they know that who they are doesn't depend on that and they're grounded on the grace of Jesus. They know the, 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 the comfort of Christ in their own soul too. And they can mourn over sin in their lives and in the world not, and, and cry, but not cry because of fear and not cry because of despair, but out of grief because they know what God's kingdom looks like and they know what God's kingdom looks like because they're close to the heart of God and they know when it's missing and that's worth mourning. But they also mourn with comfort because their lives are hidden with this God who prays a radical prayer for the kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on earth in every single area of life as it is in heaven. Well, now we have a little bit of an idea who these people are, the blessed mourners. But here's the tough question. How do we become blessed mourners? How do we begin to walk into this invitation that Jesus has given us? How do we become people with soft hearts and a radical hope? Again, this isn't what the Vancouver Daily Hive or your Instagram feed is going to suggest for the good life. And I acknowledge this, and I also acknowledge some of you may not even want this and say, this is the last thing I want my life to look like. But if you want to follow Jesus, I ask you to lay aside that resistance for a moment and continue on with me. First, let's consider briefly some of the ways that we usually miss the mark of this beatitude in becoming blessed mourners. When we encounter sin or suffering, what do we normally do? Here are three common tactics for avoidance, for avoiding the reality of sin, the reality of suffering that's worth mourning. And these, these tactics help us to, to avoid becoming blessed mourners. So here's the first, and the most common, I think, is to numb. We numb ourselves. We medicate ourselves. This is the person who feels the pain in her own soul. She knows things are not well, but the quickest way to forget about it is a bottle of wine and the TV remote. This is the student who's grieved at university by seeing his classmates treat each other like objects sexually and is grieved by it, yet he falls into the same trap by numbing himself with pornography. This is the husband who feels hopeless about his marriage and the constant fights he gets in and it feels like it's going nowhere. So he numbs himself by working longer and longer hours and when, when he's at home, it's, his mind is only there at work. We numb ourselves, and when we do this, over time, our hearts, they aren't soft. They grow hard, and our, our hope grows faint. Number two, we fix. This person sees the problems in the world and springs into action. This person gets a lot of things done. She might even come up with some great ideas to help a lo local homeless shelter, but her fixing is just another avoidance tactic. She forgot to stop and to make eye contact and to ask the homeless person her name and a little bit about her story before handing her some food. The fixer can't open herself up to the suffering. It's too scary. It's too much. And she has hope, but it's a weak hope because it's in herself and her own ability to fix a problem than in God's ability to bring true healing to it. Number three, we study and intellectualize sin and suffering. 
and keep it at arm's length that way. We can actually become experts on suffering without ever mourning it, without ever entering into it. And the news is a great help for us for this avoidance tactic, isn't it? Because we can become experts on an issue without ever engaging it really. And it actually turns suffering into a, a twisted form of entertainment. I remember a few years back when ISIS was growing and gaining strength on the other side of the world, committing horrific tr atrocities all over the place. And I remember reading everything I could about it. It, it was fascinating to read all these news articles and investigative journalist reports about what was going on, and some of you may have been doing that as well. And I could have told you all about it over coffee, but it seems to me that there's something, something deeply wrong, even in, in my soul at that time, that I could become so knowledgeable about something so horrific and not simply fall to my knees and, and cry out to God and asking him for help and for mercy in that place. I'm not saying I was totally hard to it, but there's a difference between entering in and mourning and feeling a little off about it for a couple days. Isn't there something wrong with that? So we numb and we fix and we keep it at arm's length by making it this problem or interesting thing to figure out. And all these keep it far away from us in the clouds. And they all miss the mark of the blessed mourner and miss the place of healing where Jesus Christ can come and restore and work. So how do we become blessed mourners? We can't force it. We can't conjure it up. We can't pretend it. Uh, anyone can see through that. So how do we grow in a spirit of lament for what needs to be grieved? Well, first, I've already mentioned this, but the Beatitudes overlap, don't they? They move us toward a unified vision of the kingdom. So, so becoming poor in spirit, what we discussed last week, is the first step in lamenting what needs to be changed. Go back and listen to last week's sermon if you missed it. It's, it's really helpful that when we are emptied, when we know we're, we're empty-handed before God and we allow his spirit to come in us and fill us and allow God's heart to be near our heart, then he will begin to show us in, our, in ourselves and in the world what isn't right and how to enter into that with hope. But second, I want to talk about awareness and prayer. Awareness and prayer is a way to grow as a blessed mourner. So what do I mean by that? Jacques Ellul helps us here. Ellul was a 20th century French theologian and thinker and activist, and he wrote a book called The Presence of the Kingdom. And he's talking about Christians in the world uh, trying to live out the Sermon on the Mount and how do we become people who live this way in the world. And he says we must be aware of the state of things around us and the state of our own souls in a way that wakes us up, in a way that shakes us into really seeing it. But how do we do this? He says it's in person. He says it's face-to-face. -face. It's personal awareness. So first with the world, how do we see the world in a way that wakes us up? Well, think about how we normally become aware of things today. How do we learn or, or investigate something we want to know about? or that shows up in our lives. We pick up our phone, we Google it, or we listen to a podcast or a sermon, or we read a blog, or listen to a lecture, or read some tweets or posts. And if we're really old school, we might even read a book. Well, I know, shocking. Alal says all of these things of becoming aware 
of the world will fill our minds with all sorts of information. We can be really, really smart about it. But actually for our hearts, it will only make us distant and numb and, and ambivalent to the world around us. It's that same mistake of becoming an expert on suffering without ever being willing to enter into it. Now instead, he says we must be aware of fellow human beings and what their lives are actually like, personally. This is what he says. We must no longer think of men or people in the abstract, but of my neighbor right next door, Mario. I know him. It is in the concrete life of this man, which I can easily know, that I see the real repercussions of the machine, of the press, of the political discourses in the administration. He was, he was quite a revolutionary of his day. He goes on, if we want to know what is wrong with the world, he says we must go back to the starting point, to the person that we know, and first of all, to ourselves, or to himself. All, of the, all other knowledge of the world through statistics or news is illusory. Now, a little may sound extreme to you, but his point is that without personal contact, without becoming neighbors with someone, then people become distant and abstract categories. And we don't mourn over categories. We mourn over people. Alul was thinking in his day of how the Nazis turned Jews into a category by putting gold stars on their shirts and stripping them of their names and their stories and their personhood. And we can do our horrible things to categories, can't we? But doing horrible things to people is much more difficult. We can fix and we can intellectualize the woes of, of those people, uh, those people who suffer even, the homeless or the sick or the abused or those who don't know God. But we mourn over people with names and faces and stories and quirks and hobbies and hopes and dreams. We don't mourn over people over categories. We mourn over people. The late Eugene Peterson says it like this, one part of speech that is the most important thing in the human language is the name. Names are the very basic life-giving term in language. You say a person's name and it means something because there is a relationship then. Until there is a name, there is no relationship. God softens our hearts through real encounters with people with names. With the only two things that live on when this age comes to a close, he softens our hearts with encounters with people, their souls, and his word. The only way to mourn is to have personal awareness of people with their faces and names. But this awareness also must come in prayer. It is prayerful awareness. Allah goes on and he says, to achieve the, this awareness as a whole is only possible under the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone can establish this link with one's neighbor. The Holy Spirit alone can open our eyes and ears, not only to reveal truth, but to the humble love of men. So it's bringing, bringing our awareness before God in prayer that lets us mourn and lets us receive comfort. It frees us from, from not having to numb it or to fix it or to keep it at arm's length because we carry it not alone but with a God who can handle it. Prayer also is where God directs us and shows us what 
particularly to mourn in our life, what we may be called to entering into more deeply, and what we can release, actually. Because it takes a time abiding with Christ to discern where he wants you and me to engage the brokenness, which actually frees us to mourn, instead of being paralyzed by the overwhelming amount of sin and suffering in our world. That experience just can leave us handcuffed, and then we end up not doing anything. So it's abiding with God where he forms our hearts into saying, move into this place, or move into that place particularly. Pat Sabell is our new worship leader. I've gotten to know him a little bit over the past month. Some of you may have, have as well. And him and his wife, Sherry, exemplify the spirit of the blessed mourner to me. I don't know how well you know Pat, but, they, but he mourns over the plight of the orphan in our world. He has two adopted children, and he's fostering several more children in his mid-50s. Um, and he told me, as we were talking about this the other day, that he's getting phone calls almost every week asking them to take in more, more children. And do you know what he told me about this? He said, I live in a constant state of mourning and comfort and with every, every new child that we've taken in, and even every new phone call I get, my mourning for what is wrong in the world increases and grows. And the comfort that Jesus provides and gives abounds that much more and more with it. And not only that, but he's given a chance to offer this comfort through his family, through this experience of mourning. You can see the softness in his heart and the radical hope. He's a blessed mourner. But you know what else I see in Pat that is really, really helpful is that you or I, we will never become blessed mourners unless we're able first to mourn over the state of our own soul. Unless we hear Jesus' first sermon, the call to repentance, that we're also guilty of the sins that so grieve us out there. They're also in here. Now, someone who adopts and fosters multiple children in our culture could very easily compare themselves to others and feel pretty good about what they're doing and feel like they have some pretty good bargaining chips before God, I think, if they wanted to. They could virtue signal all day long and rest in their goodness. We could even understand that. But guess what? This only leads to justification of sin and pride or condemnation towards other people, and envy on the other hand. It's not the sort of heart that Jesus is shaping his disciples into. So when we're, when we're seeking conviction and to, to know God and to know the softness of heart, we don't look at other people, but we look at Jesus Christ as our compass. And we ask the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction, to make us prayerfully aware of the state of our own soul and what needs to be mourned there. Conviction and repentance is very different from self-condemnation, too. Conviction, you know it, because it leads you to Christ, and it leads you to his comfort that he provides to those who mourn, and it leads you to the foot of the cross where healing happens. Condemnation leads to, to shame and to guilt and to hating yourself. They're very different. So we need to know and ask the Holy Spirit to bring conviction Pray for protection from self-condemnation that can come. But as disciples of Jesus, as we walk this out, we must know that there will always be mourning in our hearts until the kingdom of God comes in full. 
because things are still going to be not as they are meant to be. There will always be mourning in our hearts. And there will always be a radical hope for that kingdom to come and that will and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That radical hope is known only in Jesus, who is the great comforter, who has come and is present to give himself for us and for, for me and for you. Will you pray with me?